all profit is value extraction. And that means that all profit is theft from you. Corporate America is on welfare, and, and they you got to get them off welfare. Um, um, so what do you want to call this topic? I mean, just general rally racing and group B or I say we call it the abortion of plan B racing. (laughs) (laughs) The, yeah, the death of the killer bees. Uh, I don't know. Something something along those okay. lines, maybe. I think I think I can That just makes me feel like we should play Wu Tang in this episode. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sudden hive death, or is that a little too much B ish? I don't know. Or or that one uh um King Gizzard song that, that's about uh the uh, the little mite that kills bees. Um, I feel like that's slightly less iconic than Wu Tang Killer Bees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we recording now? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Sweet. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to Cars and Comrades, your favorite and probably only socialist car podcast. Uh, today, uh, with us, we've got uh, our usual suspects, Bryant, Zach, and Brandon. And uh, on top of that, today we also have special guest, James Gilboy. Uh, say hi for us, James. Hello. Yes, returning right. champion. That counts. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. And James uh, James writes for uh, The Drive, uh, an automotive magazine it's a website <laughs> publication whatever website, website yes. does videos sometimes yeah yeah perfect so uh you know james is a little bit more qualified than i think the rest of us uh uh folks but you know it'll be fun um so today we're going to be actually talking about uh having a general discussion on uh the origins of rally racing and kind of the connection to group b which everyone's heard of and group s and we're just going to be kind of nerding out about it. It's a fun topic. Rally racing's pretty universally cool. Uh, and there is a socialist connection to this because there were Soviet cars that were racing in these series. Uh, and there was a driver's strike. So it counts. It works for us. It's right up our alley. We, you know, Anywhere we can fit ourselves into a car topic, we will. <laughs> so, uh, so let's get started here. Um, just remember uh, to follow us on all your favorite social media sites, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, Hexbear, you name it. We're there. Search Cars and Comrades, and we should come up. So find us there, and uh, let's get into our uh, our topic. After, of course, a discussion about uh, various uh, our personal projects and whatnot. So let's uh, get started. Yeah, I, I don't think we're on Mastodon. That's the only other social media that uh, that we're not on. But I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll figure that out. What is Mastodon? I don't think we're on. 
we're, we're not on TikTok yet either. Um, I do have, yeah. I do have. There's, there's someone on, uh, on our Instagram, a listener is telling us we have to start a TikTok. So I've been putting it off, but I will do that at some point. I just don't yeah, know. How I to, think I'm too old for that, but you know, I feel one like of us it's can mostly it out maybe. It's mostly, I think, going to be videos of whoever's doing race car stuff with like just I don't know socialist lectures over it or something i don't know <laughs> i don't know what these videos will look like but <laughs> they'll if be you weird. want to do that uh one of the guys in my band club did take a video of me last night on a lot of mushrooms explaining to a seven-year-old how burnouts get more fun when you get older <laughs> mm, that would be actually a, that would be perfect okay we'll do a tiktok at some point and then hopefully you'll get content like that from us Oh God! That <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's get started with uh, kind of just where we've been with our personal projects. Uh, I think we like to go alphabetically, so I'm pretty sure that puts uh, Brandon first. All right. Uh, so you know, for a little inside baseball here, we actually haven't talked in a few weeks. We've all been pretty busy, so I have been just doing shit constantly. Um, my daily kept breaking down on me. I was having a fuck ton of, of brake problems, got those all sorted out and now started having carburetor problems. And then I got those fixed for approximately 36 hours before <laughs> some of my ATF got sucked into a vacuum line oh, and no. made it so that my transmission wouldn't shift out of first gear into like 3,800 RPMs. Uh, Fun. That's yeah. A- it's, it's, it's really rewarding just screaming down the highway at eight miles an hour. <laughs> uh, that I, was... I, I once had that experience at a rental before I was actually into cars. I think we had like uh, an Altima or something that uh, the last driver had put into sport mode. So like we're like, why won't it? Why won't it go past like thirty miles an hour? Why won't it shift? Dad, we need to take it out of manual mode. <laughs> yeah, on a uh, old. old... Old GM automatic transmissions are vacuum controlled, so if uh, if the carb is not sending a vacuum signal to the transmission, it won't shift properly. So yeah, I was I was shifting out of first. I don't know. Oh no, I'm sorry. It was 3,200 RPMs, and then I would shift out of second at like uh, 2,800 or something like that, which honestly is not awful except in stop-and-go traffic like I encountered on my way home from work when it happened. Uh, so that it was fine. It was easy to fix. I, I knew immediately what happened because I've, I've forgotten to reconnect the vacuum line before after working on stuff. So it, it I knew exactly what it was doing, and it took me a couple hours to fix. I just had to go buy new gaskets and shit. In, in bigger news, uh, I took another trip out to my buddy's house, and the frame is finished on my Pro Street van. Nice. Yay! We uh, we finished welding up uh, all the whole the back half. Uh, we were we were trying to get to the suspension, but after taking a chunk of my knuckle out with an angle grinder and smacking my little finger with a five pound hammer, pretty good. And also, just everyone in my life being an unreliable shit show. Uh, we only got the frame done, so that's still progress, man. It, it sat on the big yard. That, that, yeah, it's a big deal. That's like that's not a small task. You know, it's that project sat for like four years up until earlier this year. We've done almost nothing to it. And now we've started making like serious progress. It just it's 400 miles away from me because 
I moved, and so all my friends are, like, live far away. And he found it near him, and he's got some land, so he was just stashed it on his property. But, like, it's been frustrating because we can't get it off of his property. It, the frame wasn't even finished. Like, it was, it was sketchy getting it to his house, but, it, yeah, it was just... It, there was so much room for it to, like, buckle and bend if you did anything, like, slightly wrong. So now we can actually, like, spend a few hours getting the suspension fabbed up and putting a rear end underneath it and roll it around and move it and actually get it into the garage to put it up on the lift and start doing things. We also, through a sheer stroke of luck, when I went to his house, he was having a party that night and his neighbor wandered over, who has been drag racing for like three or four decades, has several nine second cars. And uh, he was like, yeah, I'm moving in like six weeks, but uh, if y'all need any help before I leave, let me know. And we get talking to him and he just agrees to port my heads for me for free. He's like, just oh, give it to me tomorrow. Wow. wow. Oh um, shit. That's a, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. The, the guy like clearly said some stuff where I'm like, I don't know if I trust you, but also these are junkyard heads. So I don't not trust you enough to worry about them. Yeah. The, so we got the motor tore, tore down. Um, actually, that's the first time we've torn down my motor since I got it out of the junkyard. We were very surprised at the inside condition of the motor in that it looks phenomenal. Everything is super clean. The, the, there's no noticeable ridge in the bore. Uh, the oil ain't like chunky or anything. It's, it's a really solid condition motor. We got still got to pull the pan and, and see what the bottom end looks like, but I think that we have a good candidate for a solid 500 horsepower motor. Uh, so uh, I don't, I, you guys like imports. So that number probably doesn't sound very big. No, that sounds plenty big for me. I, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I mixed that up. That number probably does sound big. It's not a lot of horsepower for drag racing, but for a motor I paid $400 for, and then have sunk an additional three to $400 in parts. I'm feeling good about it. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, we're we're very well on our way to building an 11 second van, and w w well within my five thousand dollar budget. So that was super cool. And also, as of Friday, my Cutlass is running again. Uh, I let You're it sit right. for I let it sit for fucking almost six weeks because I was so frustrated and pissed off at it. And then uh, two weeks ago, the city just randomly put up signs in my neighborhood that they would be paving my street starting that same day. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, and I'm like, you guys should really be more considerate of how white trash I am because, like, nothing that is parked in front of my house is running. So, <laughs> you're really fucking me. But I had a friend hop in the, the Cutlass and help. I, I flat-toed it with the van around the corner and we got all the broken-down motorcycles off the street and shit. But I didn't want to hassle anybody to help me flat-toe it back to my fucking house. So, I just started, like, looking for the problem and, uh, yeah, there was basically no plastic housing on, like, the two or three inches of cable that goes to the starter, like, at the block. Mm. So, uh, pretty, pretty easy find. It was grounding out like a motherfucker at the block. Like, awful. I had to replace a bunch of wiring, and I still got to run a new wire to the, the battery, a new cable to the battery. And uh, when the guy... When I got it towed after I broke down last time, it looks like the tow truck driver who uh, was just real dumb crushed my brake lines when he 
strapped my, uh, the rear axle down. So I don't have any rear brakes. So I have done a lot of burnouts in it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I guess that, yeah, that, that gets me up to speed. I don't, I don't, I feel, I feel like that was, I made progress on three separate cars. I'm feeling good about it. Yeah, that's great. Nice. Yeah. And it actually looks like I could have my drag van on the road by the end of the year. After Shit. you said it was like four years sitting, right? Yeah. We we just start like the the gist of it to catch you up is that we kept trying to uh, chase bad like fabrication work. And the last time I went out to visit my friend, I was like, fuck it, let's stop trying to fix the mess that this dude created and just cut it all out because it's, it's a, a race car rear frame section that was grafted into my van. Nothing lined up properly. Uh, it was really a cobbled together mess. We found at least one spot where there were three separate layers of sheet metal, one on top of the other, just cobbling things together. So we cut all of that out, cut out a big chunk of the original race car frame section and just put in new, like, two by three square uh, rectangular tubing and mocked all that up, fabbed that up with basically a fucking shitty MIG welder and an angle grinder. And it turned out great. Yeah. I got a, I got a cheap uh, four length suspension kit. So that should go on the next time I go out. Like that was, we finished the work at like eight o'clock at night when I was leaving like later in the night. So, uh, this welding up the suspension sh shouldn't take probably another three or four hours. And then we can actually like roll it around and, and get it on its lift. And uh, right now I, I say the frame is finished. It's all thoroughly tacked together. We didn't want to finish weld it so, because we want to get it on a good level ground and start taking like accurate measurements to make sure that everything is lined up and true. But from what we can tell it is. So if, if, if all is well, it'll be a, about, uh, an hour's worth of finish welding before it's done. Nice. I am fucking stoked. Yeah, that's cool. Have you seen um the I think the YouTube channel is called the Skid Factory, and it's one of the the guys associated with um, Mighty Car Mods. I think they his nickname is Turbo Yoda, and he's been doing a um, some kind of uh, a Ford. Uh, van that they got in Australia. I forget what it's called, but they're putting a, um, you know, a Barra Ford turbo engine in it. So I think that's like a, it's like a four liter straight six or something. Yeah, I think so. And I think they're shooting for like 1500 horsepower with it or something like that. So Pretty reasonable. Yeah. 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 Pretty good for a van. I'd say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even my boldest goal was like 1200 horsepower at the wheels in the van. And I've, I've actually come down from that just because I realized that that was going to make me fast enough that I was going to need like a crazy cage to even run that at the strip. Cause oh, I, I think shoots. mathematically that worked out to where that would be fast enough to get me into the eights. I'm cool with that in theory, but if I can save like $8,000 and just get into the tens, cool. <laughs> just yeah. the tens. Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I probably have about, if we can get everything dialed in well, it's probably going to be about 11 and a half seconds where it's at. Nice. So. And that's cool. faster, honestly, than like 99.9. It's faster than like 99.9% .9 of shit on the street anyway, so. 
Well, you know, this is all bench racing, so it's hard mm-hmm. to say how fast it'll actually be, but we, we have we have the good go-fast parts for it, so we'll see. Cool. Who, uh, so uh, who's next? We got Bryant? Uh, yeah, I guess so if we're doing alphabetical. Um, well, I haven't done too much work on my cars. Um, yesterday, I sort of took my, my Sabaru out of cold storage. You know, it's kind of my winter car because it's, you know, all-wheel drive and uh, uh, gets terrible mileage. And also, uh, the AC doesn't work. So, you know, my MR2 is my summer car. The AC works uh, and it gets good mileage. And uh, anyways, so I uh, swapped out the snow tires for, you know, just regular all-seasons and um, charged up the battery, which was a little flat. And... Um, I don't know, fixed a couple other things, you know, replaced the fog light that was burned out. Um, and then today, uh, before we recorded, um, or before we started, I uh, took it to the Saab, uh, Sabaru uh, car show that uh, someone organized here locally in the Denver area. So there's, uh, I don't know, maybe like 10 cars there at a business park in the sort of Denver Tech Center sort of area. Some some pretty clean ones, a couple ratty ones, and I don't know, wherever mine fits in that spectrum. But uh, yeah, I couldn't stick around there too long and, and hang out and, you know, see who won Best in Show or whatever. But uh, I don't know, it was cool. I got got rid of some of the parts that had been cluttering up my crawl space for a while and uh, said hello to a couple folks. And then uh, what else have been I what else have I been working on? I uh, upgraded my computer a little bit, so I doubled the RAM up to a whopping sixteen gigabytes. Um, and so now, hopefully, the um, recording will be a little less laggy, and you know we'll be able to understand each other and not talk over each other. I think that was it was my computer that was holding us all back. So uh, sorry about that. I guess. <laughs> I didn't even know that could be a factor. I just I thought it was internet. Yeah, yeah. I it was just internet. <laughs> yeah, it turns out it's my fault all along. So uh, I think I first noticed it when I had like Spotify open and it slowed everything down and I closed it and it sped up. So I'm like, oh, I should get some more RAM, if nothing else. So you could have made it car related if you got Dodge RAM. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would make it. I don't, I don't know what uh, what brand name it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, there was a uh, so where I work, you know, we share a parking lot with a couple other businesses, and uh, there is some dude in a Dodge Ram pickup just parked across four parking spots the other day. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that's your work vehicle. You don't want to get it like scratched or dirty, <laughs> right? You want you want to show off that purely functional work truck that you paid eighty five thousand dollars for, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. That's about all I've been uh, working on lately. I guess would it be? I guess it would be Connor's turn next. Yeah, or Zach. Not if we're going alphabetically, though. Yeah, I was gonna say, C like, definitely what? comes before C. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could see Zach's not prepared at all. He's like, I'm going last. No, not even a little bit. I was completely um, zoned out. <laughs> I completely <laughs> <off guard. laughs> Um, 
so I haven't uh, I haven't done too much uh, on the cars, uh, you know, past couple weeks. Uh, still no updates on the Z, so I have to get more on getting actual updates on it because right now everything is still at machine shops. So shit takes a while, um, but that kind of sucks. Um, so I'm going back to the office uh, in another week. Um, actually, by the time this episode comes out, I'll probably be unfortunately back working at the office um and i fucking hate it not happy about it i'm gonna be daily driving my camaro which is oh the Wehrmacht camaro i'm sorry ss yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah that one um (laughs) sorry i could could not (laughs) um yeah this is not the car i want to be daily driving (laughs) it's just it's like oh god um so that's going to be a fun thing. I can't wait for the check engine light to come on eight more times before I get a chance to sell it. So, <laughs> so you know, not too much there. Right now it's running okay, so uh, not too much work. So I'm going to use the rest of this time to just bitch about other stuff uh, that is not car-related, but it is work-related. The company I work for, which I think I've mentioned, got bought out by, like, I mean, it was already owned by, like, capitalist douchebags um you know family run quote unquote where you know a guy's kid gets to inherit the company and you know grandkids get to have jobs that aren't actually jobs and just pay a good salary more than i make of course um so that kind of stuff but they just got purchased by like an uber capitalist um this guy has like cannibalize several companies uh, that exist in the industry I'm in and turn them into absolute fucking shit shows. Um, So I'm back on the job market because I don't want to be around for this. You know, he's already coming in. He's making changes quick, um, which results in more work and no extra money for me. So I'm also bored. You know, there's a lot of reasons I want to leave, but, you know, this is kind of a catalyst. Some capitalist asshole came in, purchased the company, and now, through no fault of my own, I've got to fucking, you know, i got to find the door. So, again, just to bitch about how, you know, people are like, oh, the capitalists took all the risk and the workers, but I don't want to have to go out and find another fucking job. It's a pain in my ass. Um, I'm probably going to have to take a pay cut because I want to change careers at this point. And, you know this asshole isn't taking any risk. He's buying something that exists. It's fine. So that's just me bitching about it. Um, but yeah, today I was a little bit late to our recording session because I had to take an assessment for a company I applied to, which I fucking hate this part of applying to jobs, writing cover letters, doing all this fucking free labor for these assholes to maybe get an interview, to maybe get a job, or I'm almost certainly going to take a pay cut. I am not pleased about that. I, I hate the idea that, like, I wrote up this, which I have to overhaul yet again, but I have a fancy document that everyone, most people have, called a resume, where I list all the important information, and that should be it. But, of course they now expect us to give them that and then also type the same shit into their fucking goddamn internet form and spend 45 minutes, you know, doing this and this and that. 
which I do on my phone and often causes problems. And I just hate it. I'm frustrated. I don't want to apply to a bunch of jobs that I'm not going to get and waste all my fucking time, which is, of course, my time, weekends and evenings. So, you know, looking forward to doing, you know, dozens and dozens of hours of the same fucking work over and over again just to serve to possibly serve some other capitalist fucking asshole. Anyway, that's the end of my your premise that uh, they're not taking a risk because I actually think that capitalists are taking a big risk by uh, exploiting a well-armed workforce. (laughs) 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 I mean, historically speaking, at least for the U S that risk is minimal. Other countries, it is greater. I will say that. No, I was I was being vague. What I meant was people should shoot their boss. Yes. No, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so, sorry, I, I didn't mean to be too subtle there. <laughs> yeah, we, we couldn't have that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm frustrated with it. I really don't like that part of looking for a job. Is like, it's all work that's shifted onto the fucking worker. Um, and these companies do nothing. They get hundreds of applications and they bitch oh i've got too many applications to go oh it's so much work it's like bosses are just job cops yeah i mean if like if there are a hundred people that apply to one given job and they all spend an hour to do so for through cover letter through typing in the stupid same information they have in the resume to make it easy one hour per applicant times a hundred that's a hundred hours of wasted time for one job like it doesn't make sense i hate it i hate the way we organize the world um and yeah i'm frustrated by it so it's not car stuff but i'm in the job market and i'm not happy about it and also i have to daily drive my gas guzzling camaro that i don't want to put miles on because it will you know, it loses value every time I drive it. So, <laughs> but yeah, at least you drive a bitch in Camaro. A bitch in Camaro. It is a bitch in Camaro. You can do burnouts on lawns and stuff. Yeah, I have done that, but that's a story <laughs> for another day. <laughs> Not on purpose, mind you. <laughs> Whose lawn? Uh, a neighbor's (laughs) i I have literally lived the song bitch and camaro like except my dad's not the mayor (laughs) (laughs) yeah it'd be weird if your dad was laurie lightfoot (laughs) (laughs) yeah i would actually have a lot of questions in that case To, to be fair, I don't live in the city of Chicago proper, so... Okay, that's but right. point still stands. <laughs> anyway, that's all I got. So I think, uh, Zach, if you're not spacing out, it's it's on you. I'm, I'm spaced back <laughs> in. I've, I've okay. tethered myself back <laughs> to Earth. Uh, yeah, I, I've been doing a little work here and there, uh, mostly on the Ranger. Um, buying cheap vehicles. Uh, they're cheap for a reason <laughs> and yeah uh you know i went through and just did like all the general like the car had sat for four years when i got it so i was like okay all consumables are getting replaced first thing so plugs wires all the filters all the fluids everything like that um 
you know, I can't even remember the whole list of everything that I did to it. But uh, one of the big things that I wanted to do was get a new steering damper for it because it's a lifted truck. And there's a, if you don't, if you're not familiar with lifted vehicle suspension geometry, there's a big shock that goes in between your front two wheels. It's called the steering damper. It's does what it says. It basically dampens your steering. So you're not bouncing and bump steering all over the road. And when I got the truck, one of the mounts on it was broken off because it's literally just a metal strap that goes around the frame rail and then a little piece that sticks out below the frame rail and it bolts to that little nub that sticks out. And so <laughs> there's obviously a hole in the middle of the little nub. And then every time you turn, you're putting pressure on this tiny little piece of metal strap that sticks below the frame rail. It's a terrible design. It's stupid. I was like, I'm not going to get that design again. It doesn't work. I'm going to update it to, you know, a better design. So I found one that was, you know, looked like a much sturdier design. Um, and I, I went to put it in and it was just like confusing as shit to me. I was like, everything seems backwards and nothing seems to line up. Um, and that's because I was putting it in backwards. So nothing was lining up. <laughs> uh, but by the time I, I figured that out and got it spun around, I realized that, oh, the reason this design is different is because it's designed for a truck that's not very lifted, basically. It can only have like an inch and a quarter or an inch and three quarters of uh, pitment arm drop in the steering. Otherwise, obviously, it just torques it at a weird angle and it'll bind up. So now I'm going to buy a welder <laughs> and weld a box onto a... the frame to make this better design work because I'm not going back to that old design. It's just garbage. Well, I've got a little 110 volt stick welder I could loan you. I don't know if that would work for what you're doing, but I mean, you're welcome to use I it. I would definitely give it a shot. There's a lot yeah. of welding under that truck that was done by somebody who uh, apparently not only didn't know how to weld, but refused to try to make good welds. It, it was like they were trying to yeah. be bad at it. It's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it had a, had a brush guard uh, sort of thing over the front bumper, you know, big people call them like bull bars or whatever. And it was, oh yeah, yeah it yeah. was welded to the frame. Well, two mounts were, and then it was bolted to that, those mounts. And it being such a tall truck, I had to use the brush guard to get up into the engine bay to do work on it. And one time I stepped on it and that motherfucker slammed into the ground. It just <laughs> blew apart. I was like, Oh, Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad that was done really well. And so I got under there to look at where it had been welded and I could literally see three little dots of broken metal, <laughs> which was all that was holding it together. So <laughs> you had a bump hard enough on the highway and that might've come off and gone under. Yeah, the that's exactly yeah. what I thought. I'm like, you know what? I'm glad it came off while I was sitting here in the garage, not while I was driving. Cause it was absolutely terrible. Um, uh, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I can recommend you some, some good budget welders depending on your skill level and, and what you're trying to do. I was, I, I, I'm not good. I was definitely looking into a few different ones. I found um, one at Harbor Freight that actually a lot of people were had a lot of good things to say about it. Is uh, Vulcan? From what I read, if you're talking about the Vulcan mm -hmm. series, they're they're pretty yeah. good. 
Uh, Eastwood is also worth looking into. Yeah. I have a small like base model uh, Eastwood TIG welder, uh-huh. and I've only recently started putting a lot of miles on it. And you know, it's it doesn't compare to like the Synchrowave that I use at work, which is you know a several thousand dollar right. unit. But like, dollar for dollar, that Eastwood unit it it holds its own. My uh, my skill level is far below uh, even touching TIG. Yeah, I I was looking at Meg just wire feeds. Uh, for now, I've done very minimal welding, so I figured getting a TIG to start out would probably just put me a step behind, just because I don't have the skill to run it properly, and it would have taken so much longer for me to figure it out and then been able to do quality welds with. From what I hear, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm much less saying. I'm less saying buy a TIG welder, and more saying Eastwood is a brand that I can recommend. Okay. Yeah the the one I look especially for buttons. right. Yeah, the one I looked at was um, MSRP. It was 800 bucks from Harbor Freight. I've heard they routinely drop down to like 700 Someone got one for 600 bucks in like a parking lot sale one time. So yeah, I was like, you know what? That's pretty cheap. I've heard nothing but good things. It's a 215. It can run gas if you, know, you want to do that as well. And uh, it can run a spool gun too. So it's like, oh, you know. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say use gas if that's an option. Um, flux core can be really good, but it's, it's I hate it. I fucking hate doing flux core welding. I don't even like MIG welding, but it's still better. Right. Is it uh, purely because of spatter, or is there something else that you don't like about the flux core? Uh, mostly that. We have, we have jobs at work where we actually use shielding gas and uh, flux ro- uh, uh-huh. wire. Um, and God, it's just shit. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like doing anything but TIG really. Right. I am, I am a snotty fucking welder. <laughs> yeah. I think eventually I would like to move into TIG if I had the money and the, uh, the know-how, but I figured first welder purchase, first real welding projects other than just really minimal stuff. I, I would want to start it a little easier. I get hundred jobs at work, and they're like, you can just make this. And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if, if it's like a, a weld under three-eighths of an inch, I will not put, fucking touch it with a MIG welder. Fair enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, stick welding is kind of the worst of all, all of them, really. I mean, as far as, like, being user-friendly and... The one that I have is, you know, only 110 volts, so it's not real powerful to, yeah, you can't get anything real thick on there, but. I, I, stick welding is the one kind of welding I've never done any of. I don't know a ton about it, but I mean, for what you use it for, it can be very useful. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I've gotten it to work, uh, but it's, it, it takes a little bit of time to get used to and figure it out and all that, mm. but. Yeah. If you want to do like cast iron repair, that's yeah. the way to go. You don't you yeah. don't touch fucking TIG. Right. I've tried to do cast iron repair with a TIG, and it's a good way to ruin the piece that you're working on even worse. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And these welds do not have to look pretty. They just need to be functional. So I think that's where TIG really I hate to be shines. Like, ah, pretty welds are the most functional. It's true. It's true. I just, uh, when I say functional, I mean more functional than they were before because that was about a zero. So I need somewhere between yeah. one and two a function. <laughs> yeah, if there's, if there's anything I can help you with, just just 
Let me know. I'll do do what I can. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, yeah, so that's my dick. next big uh, car-related purchase. But uh, I was trying to go to my second vaccine appointment yesterday in my Ranger. And I got to the end of my neighborhood, put the brakes on, heard a big pop, and then the brake pedal went all the way to the floor. So, <laughs> it was driving without a uh, steering damper for quite a while before, so that's got pushed way back now. I got I got to have functional brakes I think first. Yeah. But uh yeah, that's about it. That's all I've done. Uh hey, Did you all see the- um what? Oh, I was, I was asking him if he's done any work on the Audi. Oh god, no. I had I had blocked that out of my brain. I finished I think the last <laughs> we talked, I was waiting on a mechanical cam adjuster. Is that Is that it? Yeah, yeah I finished that. I got it in. Started it up. It started making the same noise. The other side mechanical Ooh. cam adjuster oh. is dead. So, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about it. I fucking hate that car. I'm so sick of it. I'm going to have to drop another 700 bucks. <laughs> it's okay. I need to work it out. It's like therapy. Just bitch about it to you guys. You understand. <laughs> I'm straight up afraid to drive my Cutlass at this point. Yeah. <laughs> It stranded me in such awful places so many times. Oh, the joy of project cars. <laughs> like, oh, am I going to be yep. stuck here? Is my car going to blow up on the highway? Who knows? It's a fun little adventure. <laughs> At some point, it's not. <laughs> the last place that my car was stranded me, there was no shoulder and it was an interstate. So I was just like praying that nobody fucking railed into the back of me. <laughs> One of the other fun things about having old, weird cars that are kind of hard to maintain is that you press them to their absolute limits in really weird, unexpected ways. Um, I was driving up Pikes Peak uh, last year in uh, my family's old beater Mitsubishi Expo, and it started to have like um, some, it's kind of weird. It was like having some low oil pressure problems as I was nearing the top. I think that was because I actually overheated the oil. Don't ask me how I did that. It may have involved driving a lot faster than the people in front of me. But, um, yeah, I think I overheated the oil in that thing and uh, might have caused even more shifting problems because uh, I found out Mechanic put in ATF when he should have put in uh, Mitsubishi special stuff. So, um, mm. yeah, this is why I don't trust yeah, other people. Use the right fuel on vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to rebuild a four-speed Mitsubishi automatic, though, so... I had to pay some clown at Amco to do it. Yeah. No, I don't know anything about Mitsubishi's. Zach's right. Zach's right. I don't pay anyone else to work on my shit. Not not even because I think I can do it better, but it's just I can't be as mad when I fuck it up on my own. Yeah. Like, well, I'm not a professional. I don't know what I'm doing. Of course I fucked this up. If I pay somebody like big fucking dollars and then I just get back some hatchet job, I will be livid and still out several thousand dollars or something. So, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Man, you know, YouTube exists. Exactly. <laughs> you know, Zach, your uh, your Ranger reminded me. Did y'all ever see that that old website? I think it was like an old GeoCities website, like ten years ago, called um, Scary Steering, and it was all like lifted trucks with like um, like rebar for the pitman arms and stuff. Yes, I remember. <laughs> and I think whoever it was, you know, forgot to pay for their hosting, and it's gone now. But I think. There's a few archived versions of it sitting around somewhere. 
there's a Facebook group that's full of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to send that to you, or do you already know about it? I uh, the scary suspension and steering one that Aaron does. Yeah. Yep. You should yeah. definitely put that in the chat because I want to follow yeah, that as well. I'll see if I can find it. But um, some of it's stuff where like if you don't know what you're looking at, you might not get it. But some of it's stuff where you're like, oh, that's a weld that looks like somebody sneezed on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had seen an uncomfortable amount of lifted trucks where the wheels were tracking straight, but the cab is at like a slight angle off to the side. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you not notice? Like, how do you drive this? You just kind of like look over your shoulder the whole time, driving at an angle. I, I seen like at least five. I mean, that's how you it's drift. It's incredible. It's like drifting, but not turning. <laughs> we have an expression for that. It's, it's called, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> Uh, I I suppose so. <laughs> I guess it still works, sort of. If you, well, did you see him going down the road? It's true. That's a fair point. He was on the road moving yeah, the right. vehicle, which is more than I can say for my lifted truck. So maybe I shouldn't talk shit. <laughs> my my favorite was uh, my best friend told me about. Uh, he saw a jeep drive by one time that the battery was visibly hanging from the bottom of the engine bay <laughs> by the cable. Oh. Nice. That's a Jeep thing. Right? <laughs> he, he explained, you wouldn't understand. He explained it to me in the context of it was the only thing he'd ever seen that was in worse shape than my van. Ooh, <laughs> I was walking my dog up the Mesa a couple months ago and like something was making a horrible amount of noise behind me and not moving very fast. And I was being a smart ass to myself going, the only thing that can make that much noise and move that slow is a Wrangler. And I turn around and kiss <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess yeah. a Wrangler. <laughs> How'd you know? Dude, you don't I'm get it. Shit. It's a Jeep thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think y'all see have I, I sorry not to talk over you, but I think they have a lot of them have Stockholm syndrome because my dad had an 01 Grand Cherokee for the longest time. I thought it was kind of cool because, hey, it's got a V8 until I realized, oh, wait, this thing has wiring problems out the ass. It gets terrible gas mileage. It rides like shit. The seats are terrible. And it's a hideous shade of like fake gold. <laughs> Dude, uh, not, not for nothing. I have a friend who. Anytime when somebody needs a vehicle and they're broke, he will find them a $500 Jeep Cherokee or Grand Cherokee or whatever, straight six motor. And he's like, yeah, they don't run well and they always have a bunch of problems, but they will just never not run. And he's pushed several up into the 300,000 mile range. Like buy them with yeah, they get there. something thousand and just beat on it. We, uh, we, I've, I've been in one with him when it caught fire. <laughs> the only car that I've been in that caught fire was a Jetta. Ooh, that, that shouldn't. That was actually when uh, I was riding with my dad. He was going to look at a Civic. We went home in the Civic. <laughs> <laughs> One of my friends had a a Cherokee that uh, dripped ATF on the exhaust, so uh, it was always smoking. <laughs> but uh, you that's how a lot of cars burn down, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that is like a super common way that cars burn down. Yeah, and and my old roommate had basically that same exact uh, Grand Cherokee as uh, your dad, James, and uh, you know, same color, same wiring issues, same V eight, um, 
and uh, I'm pretty sure he got rid of it uh, around the time that I moved out. But yeah, yeah. Pretty my crazy. dad ended up donating that car as oh, uh, uh, it was like one of those schemes where you can donate a car that doesn't run for like five hundred dollars off your taxes or something. Yeah, yeah. Because not that it was even worth that in scrap. Aren't, aren't there Hellcat Cherokees now? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Grand yeah. Cherokee, but not normal Cherokees. Oh, I, I don't know the difference. If it was made after like 1975, it's beyond me. Yeah, I think no, there's the now, one of the Fiat-based Jeeps that they sell in in other countries as a Cherokee, but I forget what it's called here. Like, I don't know, Cross something. I want to say Cross Trek, but that's a Subaru. Is it the <laughs> Renegade? Which is I just sold kinda... as. Maybe that one looks like a weird. Yeah, well, the Fiat, Renegade. Right? I don't think it's sold as a Cherokee, but yeah, you know the early ones would do stoppies if you'd uh, jam the brakes on hard enough. You can find videos of that. They'll just go straight up onto their front axle. I just I I love that like the horse the, the new horsepower wars is, is a thing for sure. You know, Chevy's got the Camaro that makes like seven hundred horsepower, and there's hopped up Mustangs, but Dodge is the only one where like there won't even be competition, like. Nobody's trying to make a, a, just an SUV that's 800 horsepower and dodged <laughs> over here like, hold my beer. They're doing it with minivans practically now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's absurd. That's crossovers are. Um, while we're on the topic of, uh, of Jeeps, um, I now have to tell a quick story from like literally last night. Because um, a friend of mine who actually does listen to the show he, we were at a, a mutual friend's house and he brought his 95 Jeep, um, which I, I expected to be, I, I haven't seen in person yet. I've just seen pictures seeing it in person. This thing is fucking awesome. Oh my God. This thing was way different than I expected. Way cooler than newer Jeeps. Um, the interior looked like it was from the early eighties. Mind you, this is a 95. Um, and just like everything about it, I loved it though. I mean, it has, it's got leaf spring front suspension. Um, the thing rattles like a motherfucker. All the windows are taken off and everything. And like, he's got the back seats put away, but like you can fold them up. And I was like, actually like pretty surprised. I'm like, oh, this is way cooler than any other Jeep I've ever seen. Um, like they, they like, Jeeps have lost something over the years for sure. Um, Cause this, I, he, he let me drive it. Um, Cause we, we were going to the grocery store to get some grill and stuff. Um, and it's just, it's the little like two and a half liter four cylinder. Uh, and it was still so much fun to drive. I mean, the thing was a go-kart. I, I'm pretty sure that Jeep weighs um, next to nothing and it feels like it. And it's just, it's, it's bouncy and like, it felt like what a Jeep should feel like. And I just, I loved it. It was the coolest fucking thing. Um, and I couldn't believe that it still was at that level in 1995. Like if just, if I was just looking at it, I would have told you it was an 82 or something. Um, if I didn't know better. So anyway, it was just a fun story. <laughs> One of my favorite recent memes in in the vein of like the CDC says if you're vaccinated thing is the CDC says if you are vaccinated you can stop pretending that you take your Jeep off road. <laughs> <laughs> <I saw> that. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I actually just remembered something with the Cherokee. Did you guys see that thing a couple months ago? The Cherokee Nation asked FCA to basically go, hey, uh, don't call it that anymore. No. I'm guessing it, it didn't turn into much publicly. I mean, there was a small exchange between, uh, I believe, their elected leader and then, you know, some FCA uh, PR people. But it, I don't know. It seems a little bit. It seems a little bit distasteful in in much the same way that like I mean, you're naming something after uh, after this this culture of its own, and well, it is okay. I don't actually know the specifics of how um, uh, Native American governance works, but it is considered uh, a nation of its own. It is yeah it's, yeah okay yeah that that seems like kind of weird. It would be like. Oh, it's it's fucked up for it's sure. Worse. Like it's the, the it's bad. definitely ones that got hit really fucking hard by by the U.S. government too. Yeah, I, the more yeah. I've heard about, uh, the more I've learned about Native American history, like over the years, the more you. It's die like, oh uh, yeah, it's like, oh my god, that was, oh that that was genocide. All right, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's. You know, hard. I actually have a theory that they the reason that they like teach children history. Like, I feel like they put a lot of the really bad stuff to really, really young children because they will not remember and they won't understand the gravity of what they're learning. Um, and then by the time you get older, you learn, oh, well, here's how, like, the government worked. And here's, like, this more complicated stuff. And you're like, but what about the fucking genocide I learned about when I was eight and didn't know any better? Like, I didn't understand. Um, I feel like that's a deliberate thing maybe that's conspiratorial but like or, I, or at I, least that they teach it to you when you're so young that it like you can sort of internally normalize it like yeah like you you accept it more easily without questioning it yeah, yeah. Th- there is definitely something to that because like i've noticed that i'm like i learned about some fucked up shit when i was young and it like didn't register the way it does now as an adult i'm like what the fuck and no one no one i talk to remembers it you know, I mean, I get told on the internet every day, I, oh, you need to open up a history book. And you're like, yeah, I get told this by all the people who don't know any history. <laughs> it's it's insane. Sorry. Yeah, if, you just had to... some, if you want to get some real ass fucking history, talk to a communist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I, I think I was just talking with my friend about this the other day is like, I think, you know, if we want to be a little conspiratorial, we can say like, I think they almost teach history to be boring on purpose like so that like yeah i don't even think that's conspiratorial i think (laughs) they they really they people have pointed out that like they load you up with names and dates and stuff that you could never remember especially like their names of like french people or things like german people who like i don't speak that language that's not my culture i can't understand it uh rather than teaching the bigger picture here's what was going on for real yeah. Like, which is stuff that you can remember. Some Ooh. of this, of course, is going to be coming from flaws with the U.S.'s public education system being so yeah, brutally too. underfunded, badly designed curriculum. Um, I was fortunate enough to learn about, I mean, yeah, not all the uh, the brutality of the U.S.'s expansion westward really I, I couldn't comprehend it at age eight, but like I would say it's probably better that I knew about it because like if somebody if somebody's not made aware that, yeah, there was this really ugly 
there's this really, really ugly side to history. And, you know, they're just fed the, oh, this is how the West was won, as opposed to this is how we slaughtered our way across the West. Knowing that sort of this rough, awful stuff happened is definitely better than just feeding kids, you know, uh, this. Yeah. Yeah. Just this. Yeah. Oh, USA. Yeah. I don't know the, the, the correct answer and what the properly designed curriculum would be, but like Mm -hmm. someone out there knows someone smart knows, and we should listen to them. Hey, if we're just spouting off our random conspiracy theories, Y'all want to hear my 5G conspiracy theory? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Because <laughs> this is not a joke. I have an actual 5G conspiracy theory. Okay. I'm working on getting into the field of fiber optics, so I'm probably I'm standing by to shit all over it. <laughs> oh, no. I dare you to find a hole in this. <laughs> so there are actual problems with 5G as it pertains to, like, the, the frequency that it operates at interferes with um, the ability to accurately predict the weather. Yeah. That's like documented scientific fact. Yep. Uh, my 5G conspiracy theory is that 5G companies pushed actual 5G conspiracy theories to help bury in the algorithm <laughs> the actual flaws <laughs> with 5G. Yeah, <laughs> sort of a limited hangout sort of deal. Yeah. I can see so that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you thought you were going to fucking get me. And... No, nope, no, that's probably that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> now, admittedly, these these problems are pretty easy to defeat um, because 5G has to be generally very close to the point of use. Yeah. Um, so you can get above it pretty easily, um, which most of our weather detection like equipment is much higher than you would find most 5G. So it can cause problems, but they shouldn't be terribly too difficult to get around. Um, I can't remember where I was reading about it, but I actually do have a lot of objections to 5G, not for what it is, but just for the purposes that it's used for, where it's just going to be more and more like automation and like trying to, to drive up efficiency. And like, because you don't really need the internet that fast for like handheld devices and stuff. It has a lot to do with, uh, so, sort of not really the internet of things, but like co- coordinating like uh, uh, like industry and, and like self-driving vehicles and just it's generally self-driving a lot of vehicles stuff. and stuff. It's a lot of automation stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and it, it's like an uh, improve the efficiency of the economy thing in a way that generally gets just a lot of us stepped on. Which I'm, I'm actually I think we might be at a point where like they're now starting to like eclipse that point of like. Um, if you automate to any more without giving people jobs, like no one can buy the shit you're making. Like I, we are quickly, there's always an ebb and flow to that. And I think we're starting to get to this point where it's like, well, you can automate so much, but then not, no one can buy it. And then you, you know, capitalists are their own grave diggers. And I think we're kind of coming up to that point a little bit. No, I actually agree with that super hard. There, there's a sort of a mask off thing happening where, I feel like the ebb and flow of what you're saying is kind of giving way to capitalists just saying like, fuck it, let's push it till it breaks. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and and it will break. I mean, so I think like our best chance of like achieving revolution might almost be an accidental crisis that the capitalists create, which they're going in with their eyes open. It even seems like they're just like, again, fuck it, you know. 
run it into the ground. And I think we as socialists need to uh, prepare for that uh, possibility and kind of take, you know, lessons from past, you know, revolutions and how to turn that public sentiment that erupts overnight into constructive um, action. And who knows? Maybe it'll work this time. <laughs> yeah. I know, um, you know, one of my DSA comrades was pointing out that like in, I don't know, like about a third of the states, um, Walmart is the biggest employer. So like, if that. Seen that. yeah, if, if that was like a unionized company that would like, you know, be able to put big pressure on big parts of the, the economy or like, you know, Amazon or whatever, you know, if, if there was, you know, someone in, uh, in place at a, like a bottleneck in the economy, that would be a, a very powerful position, you know? I would actually like to take this time to criticize our ability to stay on topic. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking this. <laughs> it's fine with podcast wander, though. Yeah. I, you know, I James did... Self-crit here. <laughs> James, did we get to you about your projects? Or uh, I, I had to duck out there for a second, but... I did not end up uh, bringing up anything I'm working on. Um, oh, real quick. That's because I'm an asshole and I skipped him on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, not a Sorry, I wasn't roster. sure how to do I was like, I don't know no what worries. to do. <laughs> um, so it, as for what I've, I guess, got going. So my projects are road car, 91 Toyota MR2 Turbo, race car, 87 Toyota MR2 NA and uh, 95 Mitsubishi Expo talked about earlier. Uh, the road car, my dog just let out a gigantic <laughs> fart, Jesus. <laughs> um, so road car just uh, several weeks ago went into Nick Speed Racing in Denver. It's getting a 2.2 stroker turbo engine put in it. It's a fourth gen Toyota Caldina 3S GTE. So it's an OBD2 engine management system and head. It's uh, and then uh, the bottom end is from like a 90, like a 93 Camry or something. So it's going to be 2.2 liters, fast spool, wide torque band, low 300s in power. But, you know, it's a transaxle. So there's like no drivetrain loss. Um, who knows Wait, how long that's that'll the be road there. car. Yep. Ooh. All right. Yeah, that's the road car. Um, the race car is not nearly as fast because um, <laughs> it's oh. a lemons car. Priorities. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, also, like the Lemons car last ran in uh, September of 2019, really. Uh, that was when we popped the gasket at, uh, oh, God, what was that? That was the Get Your Fill 500, I think it was. Anyway, uh, we blew the head gasket. We did an engine rebuild, um, but we were trying to get the thing together. Uh, about 14 months ago, and I don't need to tell you what happened. We were not able to meet like at all until just several weeks ago when we got we started to get things resolved, but just ran out of time for this next race. Uh, it's it needs some chassis work. The engine should be good. Like we should actually have some passing power. Maybe we'll finish mid table. <laughs> we're not like a, a really good team, honestly. We're mostly amateurs. But uh, and beyond that, the uh, the Mitsubishi Expo, just really old family beater. We it's sort of been treated. Nobody's really put any money into it for years. Um, 
I'm trying to do that, but I just finally got it from uh, from my mom's house, took it over here, and uh, I arrived, and I saw something steam out from under the hood because the radiator has a crack. Mm. Uh, and there's a hole in the exhaust, and their registration is expired, and it doesn't shift right. So I'm just kind of... I'm kind of mentally like, because that's that's several hundred dollars there. So, mm. but uh, oh, <laughs> yeah, that means I've been driving my dad's Matrix XR, and uh, that thing got a that. Well, it does handle really well. Uh, no, I unless, actually looked at buying a Matrix at one point. They're not bad cars. Do you want you want a, a top tip? Buy a Pontiac Vibe GT instead. Yeah, they are dirt cheap um they're really reliable it's the matrix xrs but it's the gm badged version um which means it probably sells for half as much honestly a pontiac vibe gt is like if you want a really underrated uh hot hatch you'll probably want to go for one of those everyone i know n- none of them have been like car guys but everyone i've, I've known that had vibes really like them uh my family did have a normal vibe uh the Vibe GT, I don't know if you guys know the difference, but uh, it, again, it, made out it's just okay. Um, Pontiac Vibe, Toyota Matrix, same exact car, just different bodies, different badges. Um, it's a Toyota drivetrain, uh, so ZZ family of engines. Uh, so you got the one ZZ 1.8 liter, it's like 130 horsepower in the, the base and the XR Matrix. The Matrix XRS and the Vibe GT had the 2ZZGE, also 1.8 liters, but it had variable valve timing and lift. So you got like 180 horsepower out of it. Uh, I want to say like 8,500 RPM redline. The cam comes on ridiculously high at like, I want to say like all the onboard videos I've seen. It's like you're getting near redline. You're, where's, where's the second cam? Oh, it's on a 7,500 or something. Um, these were also in the Corolla XRS, the Celica GTS, uh, and the Lotus Exige. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's a really good little engine. And what car car or what year are you talking about? These would be the, the, this would be the first gen vibe that period. Cause the second gen one was a bit bigger and I don't remember what engines were in that. Um, but yeah, I would look up like, I would look up the Pontiac vibe or the Toyota matrix, look for a first gen uh, Vibe GT or Matrix XRS if you're yeah first generation was uh, 2002 to 2008 mm-hmm. um, oh, the early... I'm going to go get a Vibe and then I'm going to start researching LS swapping it <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, act, oh actually no I just found out about a really cool uh, apparently the base engine you could get some sort of factory supercharger I haven't looked into this yet but um, if you did end up buying one, avoid an early one because they had issues with clogging pre-cats. Hmm. Well, the Exige came with that supercharger in it, right? So I'm assuming it's the same one uh, that would be in the Lotus Exige if it's the same. Motor. Possibly. Possibly. I, it, it's not the exact same one because the Exige got the 2ZZGE mm-hmm. and the uh, most most of the Matrixes had 1ZZFEs. Okay. So same family of engines, but yeah, way different heads and management and stuff. Big difference in power. Okay, but the Vibe GT's got the two ZZ GE as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. I think it was a TRD kit with a super. Yeah, it, 
Yeah, it might have been a TRD thing. Uh, also, that engine was never available uh, in the Toyota MR2 Spider, which people thought was kind of wrong. But I have a conspiracy theory that Toyota had a deal with Lotus where they're like, oh, okay, yeah, you're allowed to sell your own mid-engine car, but because we're selling you this engine, we won't put it in ours. Yeah, or maybe they didn't want it to be faster than the Celica or something. Uh, I don't know. It was more expensive than the Celica, I'd imagine. Yeah. I don't remember the MSRP because I was 10 when that was coming out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw a shitbox Celica on the road the other day. And I'm pulling up on it, and you know, one fender is obviously a different color than the rest of the car. And uh, they see me in my shitbox van and get like super stoked, and I like wave at them because you know, shitbox owners unite. And then as I like turn on the other side of them, I realize that yes, the one fender is a different color. The other fender is not on the car. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this this fucking kid gets it. I love it. Nice. Yeah. Um, Should well, we get to the topic? Well, I've got a little quick news story here uh, just for a couple minutes, and then we'll get to the main topic. Um, I know we talked a little bit about uh, Palestine in the last episode, but um, I actually found this on the Street Fight uh, Facebook page. Uh, this guy, I, Iman Ryan, uh, he's a Canadian guy uh, of uh, Palestinian descent. Uh, I believe he lives in Alberta and he has like a custom shop. Uh, he makes a lot of like donks and um, I don't know, custom cars. And so he got a 94 Lincoln town car and turned it into a donk with a big 10 uh, inch lift and 32 inch tires and uh, you know, shiny paint job and, wrote free Palestine on the side of it with a Palestinian flag. And, you know, I mean, donks are a little bit silly, but, uh, the, great. <laughs> I mean, they are fun, but, um, the, the thing about this story that, that struck me most was, um, basically he got hassled by the cops every time you would drive it. Like there's this one cop that would, uh, just basically target him and like wait outside of his shop and stuff. And uh, and now he's just putting it on a trailer and taking it to car shows because he can't actually drive it on the street. Um, so, yeah, this guy basically had to sue the the local, I don't know, whatever the equivalent of the DMV is in Canada to to actually, you know, get them to tell him like, hey, what is what actually is wrong with this? What do you need me to fix? You know, uh, give me some some guidance here other than telling me, oh, it's it's unsafe or whatever. So. I don't know. That was, I think we can all identify with that a little bit, maybe not as much as a person of color getting hassled by the cops for a custom car, but I'm sure we've all been hassled a little bit for one thing or the other. Yeah. Fuck the cops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for, ev- you know, for everything. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if we're going to move on to the main topic, do you all want to take a quick break here? I'm, I'm going to get a little water. I need one real quick. Yeah. So I'm just going to go into some of the general history of uh, rally and, um, and then we'll, 
mostly talk about a little bit about uh, Group B and Group S and some of the uh, interesting parts of that. Um, I believe some of this stuff was already covered by um, Well, There's Your Problem, but it was on their Patreon paid episode, and y'all are getting this for free. So, uh, you know, maybe we're not as well-researched as they are, but you get what you pay for, right? We're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right, so... Uh, the first rally races were basically when you had the first cars and a bunch of fancy lads with their, you know, expensive uh, cars would go on a road trip and, uh, you know, just tool around the countryside and stay at hotels. And it's kind of like uh, the gumball rally or whatever. One of those rallies today where rich douchebags drive their Lamborghinis to nightclubs and party and get drunk and crash and stuff like that. Um, but it's with, you know, like 10 horsepower, you know, brass era cars that are like, I don't know. Yeah. And then sort of out of that also came these, uh, like nerdy time speed distance rallies, um, which still exist today, uh, where you have like old British guys with the MGs with a bunch of like stopwatches on the dashboard. And, you know, they try to drive exactly 43.7 miles an hour and go through all these checkpoints and stuff. Um, Okay. So while that is nerdy, I did read your (laughs) notes on this. That's super nerdy, but also kind of, kind of cool. Imagine a a racing you could do without putting your car through absolute hell. Yeah. (laughs) And, and you know, this is, um, this is something that's open to, you know, anyone that really wants to do it. Like if you want to take it super seriously and get the like fancy stopwatches and everything, you can do that. But like, um, some some folks I know I don't I don't know James if you were in, did the lemons rally but some folks did that the twenty four hours of lemons uh, has a few different rallies around the country and it's it's kind of just like a scavenger hunt where you you know have to go take a picture of a bridge or a, a, you know or a tourist trap or whatever and and then you get points uh, and some of the points in that one are based on like how hoopty of a car that you have uh, you know in in lemons fashion so like there's like all so cool yeah yeah which here, so here's the other weird thing I, I was reading the notes and i just i part of the reason i kind of want to try this at some point not that i've really looked into it seriously the um the nissan 350z one of the gauges on the dash you can kind of flip through and do you know, look at different shit one of the things you can look at is a speed and distance um like timer Okay. So like it's literally you can like reset it and you can run um and like you would clear it through each checkpoint so you would you could actually keep check you know track of it on the dash like in an OEM gauge. So I always that thought had to have been put there on purpose. Uh, yes. Now I never use it but like it's kind of cool to see it there you're like oh shit that is like it'll just keep track of your time and whatever so did they have that on the 370Z as well? That I don't know. The 370 had the same style three gauges on the dash, and I would imagine one of them is flippable. So, I mean, I don't see a reason that, like, they wouldn't put it in necessarily. Although, no, like, not many people use those. It's not a, fe- it's not a feature that's commonly used, but it might be more common in Japan and Europe, um, if I had to take a guess. Okay. So, it... it it's just it's one of those cool little things where you're like, oh, that's that's nifty. 
Yeah, I sort of wonder, like, because the 350Z and the 370Z were kind of closely related, and the 400Z or whatever it'll be called is really heavily based on the 370Z. I wonder if that's going to be in the new Z as well. Um, I would hope so. I am. I would. I really want to get. I like. I'm excited to see what those look like because I might pick one up used in a few years or something. We're gonna <laughs> see how it works out, but might buy used um, in a decade. Yeah. Um. Those the 400Z. I'm. I'm real excited about because I am very much a Z enthusiast. So it's it's very it's looking pretty promising. You have seen the the news that the the concepts that have been going around. Um, I read a Japanese story where there was apparently a Nissan executive at some... They were just parading the, the Z Proto in front of a bunch of people at a cars and coffee type thing in Japan. And he said, yeah, this is pretty much how the final car is going to look. Yeah. So no, if you there, like that... We've seen... we There is at least one like production model that I have seen in the US. So, Like personally yourself? No, no, I okay. saw it. I I saw it online, but it, it was very close to the to the yellow concept car. Mm-hmm. So you it's, saw it's, it yourself online. Yes, okay. I saw it myself online, not in person. <laughs> yeah, I've um, seen a few of those, but anyway, yeah. sorry to bring us off topic. I just I wanted to no, that's cool. Point out that weird little detail on the three hundred and fifty and how I might want to do that nerdy road rally shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. So I, I read a little bit, like I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole looking at like these old, I don't know, sort of like GeoCities type pages for these rally organizations. And there's all these kinds of different rallies that I've never heard of. Um, uh, gimmick rallies, hare and hound rallies, which that one involves um, like you, someone drops like a, a pile of like sand or flour in an intersection and you have to like find it or something. I didn't quite understand Hmm. that from the description. Uh, There's treasure hunts, which I think is like a scavenger hunt, 12 car rallies. I forget what that is. Oh, and rally cross, which is, uh, I know some folks that have done that. That's basically just um, autocross, but off road on dirt. You know, they, someone gets an old dirt field and puts some cones out. Uh, And that looks like fun. It can be that. that. It it can be that it can also be, um, just a sprint race on a short or right. a short dirt or mixed course. It's more commonly the autocross style stuff in this country, but in Europe and elsewhere, it seems to be more of a sprint race kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I think there's an, an entire series or, or class or event or whatever called rally cross. I'm not sure uh, the sanctioning body or how, how that works exactly, but it's, it's like you said, it's like five quick laps of like, um like a stadium infield sort of deal with some, jumps and some pavement parts and whatnot Mm -hmm. it does Um, struggle for popularity they there have been several series these last few years that have tried to make it stick mm. they all run out of funding yeah they had some big names too like ken block did that for a while and like yeah Uh, travis pastrana which is surprising yeah god who else was you know uh colin mccray did it i think for a short while when he was alive you did some rally cross events. They're really cool to watch. I mean, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's because they're fast paced. There's often a bit of contact. There's a ton of oversteer. Yeah, it's cool. They, they always have a Joker lap, which is a cool concept to me. What is it, Joker lap? A Joker lap where it's you have to take it one lap of each heat. So if you have three laps, you just pick when it is. It's usually 
a slightly longer lap than the standard lap and it often has a large jump in the oh, middle of okay. it but it's up to driver decision when you take it so you can split off from the pack immediately if you know everyone else seems to be taking the normal lap first lap you can split off and do your joker then or it's you know it's a little bit of on the spot it's also sometimes shorter. Or, or shorter yeah i suppose i should say it could be shorter or yeah longer or or shorter but it's a special lap yeah that's interesting within the course yeah some of those tra- uh, tracks i've seen also they'll have like sort of a figure eight course where um you know it jumps over the itself basically um so you can have cars passing over each other at points so basically up until the 1960s you know rally was basically just a road trip and it wasn't like a timed event unless you're doing one of these time speed distance things it was on public roads that were open to regular traffic and you know you were meant to uh, obey all the traffic uh, laws and then uh, in the 1960s uh, mostly with the Monte Carlo rally um, they evolved into what became known as a special stage where um, they actually were timed they competed against the clock and it was a closed circuit but still on public roads so they would close down usually like some mountain roads and um, the but they were still driving basically stock road cars but maybe with like you know a couple spare tires or some big you know lights on the on the front um if they're running at night or whatever but then eventually in uh, 1973 the world rally championship was formed as part of the fia sanctioning body and the homologation rules um required basically just unchanged stock uh production cars with at least uh, 400 um, produced and sold. So you had to, you know, it had to be something that you could go and buy at a dealership and that a company was making at least 400 of. And then at one point, uh, Lancia allegedly uh, cheated this rule by building 200 cars uh, and then waiting for them to be inspected and then moving them all to a different parking lot and uh, having those inspected. I've heard that story with the Ferrari 250 GTO as well. Oh, really? For yeah. some other homologation? Uh, no, the 250 GTO specifically. Like, they built 60-some when they were supposed to build 250. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I yeah, guess it's a, a common anyway. trick in Italy. And and there was a ton of cheating at Rally. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more. But, like, you know, as with any racing, you know... Anytime there's rules, you know, people are going to stretch them. So in the late 70s, car manufacturers started designing purpose-built rally cars. um, And then they would sell a few, uh, quote, production cars to the public, um, mostly to, you know, private rally teams. And uh, so early examples of this are the Lancia Stratos, which uh, was a mid-engine car with a space frame chassis and a the V6 engine out of a Ferrari Dino. Uh, And then there was also the Renault R5 Turbo, which is the mid-engine turbo version of uh, what was sold in the U.S. as the Lecar or Lecar, whatever. It was, yeah, it was a Renault 5, but I don't know for whatever reason they called it Lecar in the U.S. So a little hatchback. my ignorance here, but what do you mean by space frame? So Uh, tube frame. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a cage with some suspension attached as far as i I know 
yeah, I think there might be some technical difference between a tube frame, space frame. I I wouldn't know it. I th- I think a space frame can sometimes be made out of like other than tube. It can be you know box section or sheet metal that's welded together. Because I think technically the Fiero has a space frame, uh, because it has most of the bodywork is plastic or whatever. They call it a space frame. I don't know what the you know. Yeah. I was just reading about that this morning. Okay. Maybe, I'm going to say that's... my van is a space frame because it takes up a lot of space. <laughs> that works too. Yeah. So, um, what's that? My life, my rules. There you go. <laughs> so, in 1979, uh, Audi sort of changed the game with their all wheel drive uh, Quattro car. And, uh, you know, before this, all the rally cars were either front-wheel drive or rear-wheel drive. Uh, most of the competitive ones, like the the Lancia and the Renault, were uh, rear-wheel drive. And then, uh, so they started, you know, winning some of the more dirt stages uh, or, you know, mud or snow or whatever. Although, since they had this big inline-five engine sticking out in front of the, the uh, front axle, as uh, Zach knows about, uh, the it, it understeered a little bit, uh, to say the least. So it was it was a little bit challenging to drive, um, especially on tarmac, I believe. So then in 1983, uh, they had new homologation rules that went into effect, and they created um, four classes: A, B, C, and N for uh, normal. That was ba- your basic street cars. Um. And then Class B had the lowest homologation requirements with only uh, 200 production cars required. So that was, there There weren't a whole lot of rules for Group B. So this became uh, the fastest uh, class eventually. Um, so there are no restrictions on car design, exterior or interior dimensions, material composition of cla- uh, chassis or bodywork, drivetrain layout, engine type or size, power output, uh, but it did have a few rules. Uh, the cabin had to fit two seats side by side and could not be open roofed. Uh, it had to respect a minimum weight uh, calculated via engine displacement and forced induction. So basically, they all had similar power to weight ratios. And then also maximum tire size uh, calculated via engine displacement and forced induction. And then basically, the rest was a was a free for all except for safety requirements. And a lot of them cheated this. Uh, Lancia allegedly made uh, roll cages made of cardboard just to get lighter. I feel like that feels like an urban legend to me. I, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't that, that... find ver- verification of that because it was just something Jeremy Clarkson said once. Uh, that so... seems like way too dangerous. <laughs> that, like, that especially knowing be... how that race series went, that seems. I think I'd be too scared to drive that. And those yeah. guys are fucking crazy. It so. might also just be hyperbole from Jeremy Clarkson because half the stuff he says is. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of them did have aluminum roll cages, which was a problem we, we'll get into later. Um, yeah. You, I saw that in your notes, and that confuses me because you can make a stronger... Like, it should, Shouldn't you be able to make a stronger frame out of aluminum in terms of strength to weight ratios? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure Strength how that would weight. work. But Strength like to weight, yes. The problem is like steel. Like if you have a cage that is 
let's say the tube measures one inch across or two inches across, the two inch steel is going to be stronger than the two inch aluminum. However, if you made like a three inch aluminum cage, that could probably be stronger than the two inch steel and way less. It's the same thing with like aluminum drive shafts. So like you can have, if you make it wider, you can have it be stronger than the steel and also lighter. And the other thing about that is when you, you do smaller diameters in steel because of the weight, when you do a larger diameter in aluminum, you add rigidity to what you've created. Exactly. So Um, it's it's a lot better. But in a cage, you're sacrificing room and space inside. Right. I, I can also see there's the drawback that like steel can withstand more damage. Aluminum yeah. fails quickly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's so like I, I imagine say. in a catast like if you're just going for rigidity, aluminum would probably be better. I don't know like if there was an actual accident how an aluminum frame would hold up. Also, um, a few manufacturing concerns with a larger diameter aluminum tube. Um, now I don't know the name of the the tool or the the machine that's used to bend pipes, but larger diameter, you'd need a much uh, larger diameter uh, tool for bending aluminum. And then you'd have the trouble of getting all these bigger, wider diameter tubes inside the chassis yep. and making sure they fit all correct. Yeah. And you can't also, you also always, you can't always bend aluminum without it cracking really. Like it's much easier to bend steel safely yeah. from what I understand. Uh, and a lot of a lot of roll cages actually require you want as few welds as possible. Like, um, for example, like you know, you'll see most roll hoops in like Miatas or whatever. There's one big solid sort of thing going across, and then there's one brace. It's not you know, uh, it's not pipe pipe because you want as few welded joints as possible. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, especially like if you're. If you're welding aluminum, don't you usually like heat treat it afterwards too, right, Brandon? Or can you you just leave it as is? We we don't do any sort of like structural or certified welding, uh-huh. so I don't have a lot of experience with that. But I, I am not familiar with ever having to heat treat aluminum. Uh, okay, I remember someone talking about it uh, about mountain bike frames that they would weld them and then put them in a heat treat oven. But you can't really do that for a whole roll cage. I don't know. You need a pretty mm-hmm. big oven. Yeah, I would have to look into that. But um, I don't do a lot of aluminum welding, uh, so I, I don't know. But like having to having to heat treat stuff before or after welding is is really normal. So it's entirely possible. Also, it depends on what you're talking about. Like uh, six thousand or seven thousand series aluminum. Like you can't weld seven thousand series. Six thousand you can. Um, so it, like it, it, it's it's in a specific sense, it's not just aluminum is this or is that. It really depends right. on the uh, the alloy. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so uh, at this point in the early '80s, um, the cars were making around 250 to 300 horsepower, but they kept bumping it up. And uh, by 1984, the new Audi Quattro was making 450 horsepower. Um, and then Peugeot sort of entered the all-wheel drive uh, competition with their uh, 205 Turbo 16. So I'll just go through the years here. Uh, you know, they kept bumping up the uh, the power and, you know, new manufacturers were coming in and, um, you know, 
sort of advancing the technology. So 1985, uh, Lancia um, debuted their first all-wheel drive car with the Delta S4 that had 450 horsepower. Um, also the same year, MG brought in their Metro 6R4 uh, that also had all-wheel drive and 380 horsepower. Um, 1986, uh, Citroen brought in the BX4TC with 380 horsepower, uh, which that one was not very successful. Apparently, yeah, that I've I've heard rumor. Um, I haven't tracked this down, but I've heard rumor Citroen was so embarrassed with it that they actually tried to track down as many cars as they could to destroy them. Yeah. It's just a shame because it's a really cool car. Yeah, I think they had a similar all-wheel drive setup to the um, to the Audi with the engine way out in front, so they weren't all that well balanced. Um, and then you know it was their first year, I think, in in uh, Group B, so they hadn't quite worked out all the kinks yet. And then uh, in the same year, in 1986, uh, the Ford RS200 with 450 horsepower came out. And those are some amazing cars. Like I've seen a couple of them race at Pikes Peak and uh, they make some cool sounds and they uh, skid around corners pretty cool. And then, uh, so, I mean, the power kept creeping up. Uh, Lancia at one point was working on an engine that made 450 horsepower and Audi had a, had their version that made up to a thousand. Okay. I saw that in the notes. That is fucking insane. Like, yeah, there were supercars in the nineties that were like five and 600 horsepower. I get that. That's only a production vehicle on a, a technicality, but dude, a thousand horsepower in a car in 19 fucking 80, whatever is, is fucking bonkers. Yeah. I mean, some of these were accelerating as quick as like, um, F1 cars of the same era. But on dirt, you know. <laughs> um, to be fair, F one cars of that era were kind of handfuls, and were they were they had the same sort of uh, they were riding the wave of turbo tech as well. So like power was going crazy in F one as well. I've talked to somebody who I I don't know if their info was good, but they say they heard uh, Honda's turbo F1 engine in 1988 at qualifying trim was making 1500 horsepower. And remember, this is a, this is a rear wheel drive car weighing less than 2000 pounds with eighties tire technology. Yeah. They're slicks, but what does that matter if it's the 1980s? Um, yeah. And I, I did see at some point that the uh, Lancia Delta S4, I believe they recorded a lap time for it around uh, the Monaco Grand Prix circuit. And it would have, I believe if memory serves, it would have managed uh, a qualifying time. <laughs> if it <laughs> for F1, you mean? Uh, yeah. For okay. the, yeah. I, I'd have to look into that again anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, I like basically they were doing this by just having um, massive turbos on them. And so, like, I think some of them had turbo time or turbo lag that was like around two seconds. Uh, so you really had to plan ahead going into uh, into a corner and when to put your foot down to accelerate. Um, a lot of them would just do left foot braking to spool up the turbo too. You know, the Delta S four was twin charged. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I think was that in Group B or was that um, yep. one of the ones that was for Group S? 
that was a group B one. Um, okay. And by twin charge, I mean it had a it had a supercharger and a turbo. And the way I believe that worked was there was some sort of pressure release or a D or it was either a pressure release or something that decoupled the supercharger once turbo boost came on. It was really complex, but it meant there was no lag and they make one hell of a wailing sound. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I think the one that I'm, I was thinking of for group S they uh, Lancia was working on a head design that had like um, multiple intake uh, paths um, it's real weird looking and I don't quite understand how it worked, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. I think that was for the ECV or the ECV two, as it was called. Yeah. It, it's like, it, like just to put it simply, I think so in all the engines I've ever seen in road cars, you know, the intake valves are on one side, the exhaust valves are on the other. Um, imagine that, but kind of checkerboarded. So like, it, I think it was done to keep the head uh, at, a more stable temperature or something. I don't remember the exact reasons, but I, I think it was, it was so that they could run uh, a turbocharger on either side of a, of a straight four. So they had, I think twin turbos and then uh, some weird crossover intercooler thing where it would, uh, I'll, I should probably have researched this more before I talked about this, but <laughs> um, it was like called triflux or something. I'll see if I'll put yeah. it in the notes. Crossflux maybe something like that. Um, but anyway, so in, by 1986, uh, the, the power or by 1985, actually the, uh, power was sort of overwhelming the, uh, handling and safety. Um, and also the ability of the spectators to jump out of the way, uh, because (laughs) at a lot of these, uh, you know, rally stages, the spec, there'd be like 400,000 people lining the route. Um, and they would just be like pressed up. There was no barriers or anything. They would just, some of them would just be standing in the middle of the road and like trying to get a picture or whatever. Which by the way, three to 400,000 people at one event just seems crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, some Mm -hmm. of these would like go the, the length of a country, like all the way through Portugal or the UK or whatever. So like it'd be a few hundred miles, but there'd be, you know, hundreds of thousands of people along it. That's that's still pretty wild and though. It was impossible to control them. Yeah. Like actually yeah. that's what's what's interesting almost is like how big motorsports were back at that time. Because right now I don't think you could you could manage that. I, I just don't think that there is any series that could get that kind of almost like I don't want to say like you know, to to the point like you couldn't get a uh, a, a football series to have that many fans at any given time in a, in the U.S. Like people will sometimes like they'll watch it on TV, but I don't even think I don't know. I don't think there is that much interest in any kind of sport nowadays. Like I just I don't know. That's at the time in a smaller in smaller countries like that. Like those were big. That was a big deal. Yeah, uh, much more so than it is today, which is which is a real shame, I think. It's, um, it's kind of made more impressive by the fact that rally is actually a really not good spectator friendly sport because you <laughs> yeah. set up your folding chair and you wait an hour to see a car come by and you don't even know yeah. if there's a red flag or anything unless somebody's got, you know, a radio on. Um, and, you know, like a football, you know, football is a better spectator sport. You know, you have yeah. the thing here. Here's when it's going to happen in this certain time. Yeah. Yeah, and you know these people are setting up to see 
a car go by every hour and they get to see it for four seconds and hear it for 12, you know, but like, so it's just, it's interesting that like, we've gotten to a point where that's not the case anymore, which I don't know what that means, but, um, it's just interesting. Then the next bit in your notes, Brian, I know is even more interesting and wild. So, <laughs> Yeah, so I'm just going to read off of the stuff that I copy and pasted. I forget which source it was. Uh, so in, uh, in Portugal, dodging cars uh, became sort of a national pastime. Um, this evolved into trying to touch the cars as they sped by. Um, bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> Very bad idea. There, there were... were... Sorry, go ahead. I, I don't know if you were about to say this there. I've heard plenty of myths of, Oh, uh, they'd come to the end of the stage and they'd find fingers sometimes. Yes. In the uh, that's not a myth. I've seen a video of them plucking a severed finger out of an Audi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was real. Yeah. People were losing digits to touching cars. Yeah. It says here, um, Peugeot and Lancia service crews, uh, found blood, hair, and severed fingers stuck into the wings and ducts of the cars while performing repairs. Yep. There's hair a video out a there. wilder one to me. Like losing a finger <laughs> is intense, but if there's hair on it, that person died. Like you, you, they, <laughs> there's, there's not a chunk of scalp on your car. That's doing like a, however fucking many miles an hour through a turn. And that person got smacked by a flip. Yeah. yeah, and there's a guy. You know, it says there's a guy that uh, got his leg broken by the uh, the Audi driven by Walter Roll, and uh, you know took it as a badge of honor. So he was like, you know, hey, sorry, man, I broke your leg. Oh no, it's cool. I was, it was awesome. I got so close. <laughs> so you know, there's there's one of these things that I think about every now and then is that back in the day. Some you know even longer ago back in you know the, the around the turn of the 20th century, um, and apparently even into like the 1970s and stuff, people were genuinely dumber. Like, I don't think like we know we take the time to appreciate just how much smarter each generation of human beings is than the last. But people were fucking dumb, <laughs> man. They just did not have the same capability that people today have, and they were theoretically that much smarter than people you know in the in the 20s and 30s even like our lives are dictated by the actions of really stupid people which (laughs) is always true but like imagine like the dumbest person you can think of today they ran the world 50 years ago or and and 100 years ago and and so on and so forth actually if i think of some of the dumbest people i know today they're pretty much running the world today yeah Yeah, that that too (laughs) So just imagine it, you know, multiplied over itself. Just yeah, I I mean, I've heard people talk about like theorizing that it was you know uh, lead poisoning that just made everyone born before I don't know nineteen ninety stupid. So uh, we theorized about that on this podcast. Actually. Oh, that's right. We did talk about that. As I understand it, that's not a theory. I I believe that is established fact. But I don't know if it pertains as much to intelligence as as much as like things like impulse control. I'm sure it has yeah, violent tendencies. Yeah, like you may not be a more violent person, but you have a lower threshold for uh, like suppressing those violent urges. Well, there's also a lot to be said for all the other factors that contribute to how people's brains come out. Everything from nutrition, which has gotten 
in many ways much much better over the last uh, several yeah. decades um access to information in some cases i mean not everybody bothers to look stuff up on the internet these days but like kids these days have a greater access to information than any generation before them like yeah I hear Gen Z ears sometimes talk, and I go, "God damn, you guys are smart." <laughs> yeah, like re- reaching conclusions at like fifteen that I, I came around to at like thirty. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so all this, uh, I gonna, I don't know what you would call it, lackadaisical safety, sort of. Uh, well, it killed people. Uh, so in uh, 1985 at the Corsica rally, uh, driver uh, Attilio Batega um, crashed into a tree and died. Um, the uh, Lancia's aluminum roll cage failed to save him, and the ambulance took 20 minutes to arrive. So they weren't really taking safety seriously at this point. You know, I, I can't imagine how much better an ambulance could have done theoretically. Like, if you don't have ambulances every mile in a several hundred mile race, like I don't know what else. In fact, that's probably fast for, you know, what they had actually like it's hard to go pack up and go, you know, to get word back that someone crashed. I I was thinking the the same thing, man. I'm sure those ambulances didn't have like off road suspension and tires to like run the course through. Right. Yeah. So 20 minutes is actually, I think remarkably fast. Especially given the speed of communications as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who's there to report it? Nobody's got a phone. Nobody's got a yeah, radio. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's just, it's, it's a dangerous motorsport, so <laughs> that's just, that's the reality you're signing up for. I'm frankly surprised that they weren't using helicopters for, like, emergency they... response, because they often use mm-hmm. them for, I'm assuming in this era as well, for, uh, you know, just course monitoring and... And filming as well, I think. So they had they had helicopters. There was in the some air. helicopter use. Yeah, well, and a lot of the teams had their own private helicopters that they would use to like run spare parts out uh, to the teams if they were broke down in the middle of a stage. Um, and I th- I forget which team was working on actually doing mid air refueling on some of the longer stages <laughs> from. <laughs> So, like, they would have some dude leaning over the side of the helicopter with a, a hose and trying to put it in the filler of the car. Oh, boy. Um, but I don't think they ever actually did that. Um, and and in the next accident um, in Argentina, um, uh, they actually did ev- evacuate them with the team's helicopter. Uh, that was um, Ari uh, Vatanen's Peugeot. It was going basically at top speed, hit a bump, and did a front flip. And both uh, him and his uh, co-driver, Navigator, were seriously injured, but uh, lived. Um, that one, I believe, had a steel roll cage, so they were okay. Um, or, you know, sort of okay. They lived. And then the worst accident uh, was in 1986 at in Portugal. Uh, and uh, this was when Local driver uh, Joachim or Joachim Joachim. I don't know how to pronounce uh, Portuguese. It might be Joachim. Joachim. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I've seen a few ways. Yeah. Uh, anyways, this guy uh, Santos 
uh, crashed his uh, Ford RS200 into a crowd of people. So it took a while for the race officials to uh, hear that this had happened. Like you said, there wasn't good communication. Uh, and basically it was down to the spectators to like flag down cars and stop them. And some of them were actually like throwing rocks at the cars as they were passing, telling them to stop. Uh, so it took a long time for the emergency services to get there. Uh, and eventually uh, three people died at the scene. And then uh, at least one more died of their injuries later on uh, with 30 more people injured. So this was, uh, you know, a big, big blow, a big, you know, um, it was a big deal. You know, people were really shook. So at the end of the day, uh, all the factory uh, team drivers decided to go on strike and uh, withdraw from the rally. Um, this was not like sanctioned by their teams. It was just something that the uh, um, the drivers decided together. They just like got together at the hotel and decided, hey, we're not doing this. And they put together uh, a letter, which I'll read. Um, the reasons that all the undersigned drivers do not wish to continue with the Portuguese rally are as follows. As a mark of respect for the families of the dead people and for those injured. Number two, there is a very special situation here in Portugal. We feel it is impossible for us to guarantee the safety of the spectators. The accident on stage one was caused by the driver having to try to avoid spectators that were in the road. It was not caused due to the type of car or speed of it. We hope that our sport will ultimately benefit from this decision. So uh, the officials and the team owners were like pissed about this. They wanted to keep the rally going. But, um, you know, the the drivers held firm, at least most of them did, Uh and eventually this led to Audi uh, retiring from Group B, um, basically saying, hey, we're not going to continue unless you, you know, change the safety regulations and stuff. Um, so they did continue on with the season, the rally season, uh, until the, the next uh, Corsica rally. And on the second day of the event, May 2nd, um, on the Corta Taverna stage, uh, driver and co-driver Sergio, or I, I missed the, I don't know. Uh, Sergio Cresto crashed uh, their Delta S4 on a somewhat mundane left-hand corner. So I'm not sure if that's the driver or the co-driver. So it it left the road. No one's really sure why. There was no, um, there's no witnesses to the actual event. Uh, but some people did see a uh, fireball come up across the tree line. Uh, basically, the it left the road, it rolled down the hill, uh, and caught fire. Um, by the time anyone got there, it was just basically a frame that was left. There was nothing left of the, the drivers or the bodywork. I think the body was flammable. Yeah, it was, uh, it was Kevlar composite, uh, which I yeah. guess is pretty flammable. Toivrenin, I, I believe, is the driver. So, and this is something that kind of made, blew my mind. They, they had moved the uh, tank to underneath the seats, which is fine. Like, I mean, MR2s have the 
tank underneath the seats. That's not that unusual. Um, but they also decided to remove the skid plates to reduce weight. Uh, so they just had an exposed fuel tank sitting underneath them. So within hours of, of this crash, um, the FISA, the sanctioning body, uh, you know, canceled the rest of the 87 season. Um, 86 season. Or is it? Uh, I believe you're right. Yeah. Um, so Audi and Ford withdrew, uh, and then, then the uh, remaining manufacturers also uh, withdrew for the rest of the season. This also scrapped the planned Group S regulations, which were going to come into effect for 1988. But, you know, there was some still some talk within FISA of, um, you know, continuing for the 87 uh you know, uh, season, but they, uh, they decided against that eventually. And, uh, group E was, uh, you know, disbanded after that. And so then group A became the, the premier, uh, you know, rally event in WRC. And that's kind of what most of us know from, you know, the nineties with Colin McRae and, um, you know, Subaru, Mitsubishi, those, those races, and those were a little bit more closely tied to standard road cars. They're a little bit more homologated. Um, but that was the end of Group B. Um, and we'll get on, we'll talk a, a little bit about uh, Group S here in a second. But I wanted to read this uh, what Marku Allen said uh, going from Group B to Group A. Um, I can answer that easily. It felt like the world had just ended. I had just lost the championship after 10 days, so I was really depressed, and then they gave me what was going to be our new car to test at Ivalo in Finland. I was really shocked. Compared to the S4, the Group A Delta felt like a road car. Our S4 was developing around 700 horsepower by the end. The Group A Delta around 230 it just felt like driving a road car and I was so frustrated by everything. I really wondered what the point was in continuing. I had never liked that Delta. Although we had some good results with it, this was never my car and I rolled quite a few of them. The S4 was developed and built around me. So although it was a bit like a NASCAR, all power and noise, really not so sophisticated at all. My feeling with it was a lot better. So I can sort of see his frustration, but also like, you know, people fucking died. Like <laughs> something had to change. I don't know. I think, uh, I think also there was, I don't think this actually played much of a role in group B's cancellation, but there was a non WRC fatal crash involving a Ford RS 200. Um, oh, really? I, yeah, I don't remember who was driving, but uh, the, you can see the helicopter footage out there. It's nothing super graphic. Car leaves the road, goes up in a ball on a flame. Yeah. So, but yeah. But yeah, so Group S was uh, a new set of rules that was meant to uh, replace Group B in 1988. And they had started working, you know, trying to, to solve some of the safety issues. And part of that was um, to have a limit of 300 horsepower, but it had basically no homologation requirements. So you could build whatever car you really wanted to. 
Um, and it was meant to be sort of like a prototype class or like a tech demonstration class. So it was, it was meant for like um, manufacturers to show off their latest technology. Uh, so like lightweight chassis design, exotic materials, aerodynamics, and uh, advanced electronics. And it was meant also to be more of like a level playing field, you know, with uh, uh, that cap on horsepower. Um, and there were some pretty wild looking uh, cars that were proposed. Like a lot of the manufacturers, even though it was one or two years out from, uh, you know, these rules going to effect, they had started working on prototypes already. And uh, my favorite is probably the, the Toyota MR2 uh, 222D or 222D, um, which is sort of like a, a first-gen MR2, but rollified, if that's a word. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> You made you know, it a word. <laughs> all-wheel drive, turbo, you know, 300 horsepower plus, um, all composite bodywork and everything. Uh, there was very little of the MR2 uh, actual body in there, maybe like... I don't know the door, the doors or something. If that, <laughs> I don't think even that. Um, I followed a guy who is recreating that body, which is really hard because you had to do it entirely by pictures and by guesswork, basically. Right. But I think even the doors were different. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that that brings us to some of the the Soviet rally cars that uh, that uh, James dug up. I that's one of the reasons why I asked him to be on this episode is. Uh, you wrote a couple articles for the drive about different uh, Soviet engineered rally cars. Um, now, I believe it was a, the Moskvich was the uh, the Group S prototype. Um, I th- so I think the Moskvich was more. The simple way to put it is probably they were possibly both designed for B, but then sort of grandfathered into S and the timelines are actually super rough uh, on the Moskvich, especially. Um, I think most of that development work was done in 86 or afterward. Okay. But, but um, I'm guessing you want some sort of highlight of what these cars were. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I've read your article, so I know the basics, but, uh, mm-hmm. You know, there. I know the they were both based off of like um, Fiat uh, compact cars, I believe, that were then license built in the Soviet Union. I would say, really, well, they were as based off of license built Fiats as any Group B car was based off of a road car, really. Right. So you know, you've actually just got a tube frame underneath a body that looks like the road car, and then the rest is just pure race car. Um, that was especially true uh, with the Moskvich 2141KR, which only existed in hatchback form. It was never actually sold in the coupe body that they built the race car. Um, the Lada, uh, the Lada Samara EVA. Uh, I mean, yeah, you should just sort of think of these as they were group b or group s cars and that they were silhouette race cars these were not real um these were not road car related like really any group b car was right Hmm. yeah and um i don't know they're both pretty funky looking the 
the um, Lada has like two wings in the back. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> two wings. Not like incorporated into the bodywork at all. Just kind of, you know, a couple of ricer wings just kind of stuck on there. <laughs> yeah, one of them's like at the end of this. I, I'm not even sure what to call that style of roof. It's not quite a fastback. It's not quite a camback. There's, there's one roof spoiler. There's one where like a normal spoiler would be. It's weird looking. It's kind of cool. All the downforce. Yeah. And, and these probably would not have been... <laughs> they definitely would not have been competitive. I mean, okay, so I think the only one that stood any chance of making it to... Uh, and the reason I say this is just because of the uh, the combination of the political situation in the USSR in the mid to late 80s and the complete death of these motorsports. But had they made it, they would not have been competitive because if you look at the, the Lada... Uh, how much power was okay? The Lada was making. It was making like three hundred horsepower, uh, according to one source I saw. And remember, like, I'm fairly sure that the Lancia O thirty seven was making three fifty. So this thing had a gigantic power deficit. So no matter how good the chassis was. We don't know how good it was. No matter how good the chassis was, it would have had a massive power deficit. It would not have been a competitive car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which actually, and, you know, I'm almost wondering, I don't know if you ran across this in, in your prior research there, James, but, you know, it, it seems like the Soviet Union kind of got into this stuff really, really late in the game, which is almost weird. They almost didn't have any of the learning. So like all these other places, it's almost like, they're the experienced workers versus like the, the new guy who comes, you know, the new person at the company who's like still figuring out, Oh, so you guys do this, this way. Oh, I see. It's almost like they missed out. And I can't imagine why the Soviet union would be getting involved given how tumultuous things were in the Soviet union at that time. Cause it's like, this just seems like their worst time for them to get involved mm -hmm. and, and it's never going to go well for them I, I don't know did they did I, they have attempts in in the you know earlier in the series or um okay so this i could go off on a bunch of tangents and i'll actually see how many i can do because there's a lot of interesting stuff here so that's what our podcast uh, is it's a bunch of tangents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah but the problem is i can never remember all the ones i want to go on so um all right so first thing i guess with the whole joining in and like uh Okay, yeah, the, the Soviet Union got involved very late. And, you know, these being sort of, you know, very closely state-related uh, yeah. companies, entities, these were, um, for the most part, uh, state-sanctioned when, like, after they, I believe it was the Lada was developed partially in secret, like during off hours in an unused room, or maybe if that was the Moskvich. I, I think um, it was the Lada. Okay. It was, yeah, the it Lada. was um, at a factory in Estonia. Yes. An Estonian truck plant. I read a spare room guys working off, you know, guys working spare hours. It, it was almost like a, in that sense, it's a bit like a Soviet C5. If you know the story behind the C5's development, but um, so yeah, there was, there's, not a lot of sort of state uh there's not a lot of state backing behind this until like the projects were fairly far along even then i sort of have uh 
Oh, a small tangential theory. I couldn't find any actual evidence to support this, but I think part of what might have killed these uh, projects was the Chernobyl disaster, which occurred in April of 86. So like that would have, that was a giant problem for the USSR that cost them a ton of money that, you know, they didn't really have to spend on race cars. Um, but okay. So that's, the, the development of the Moskvich is, it has more of that, that gave me a better look at the political environment surrounding uh, Soviet motorsports during that period. So the long and short of it is they brought in a rally driver named Stasis Brunza, um, uh, Eastern European, I think he was Lithuanian. He used a bunch of Western connections to get parts into the program. And I think as soon as the uh, Soviet government figured out that he'd done that, because they're like, well, well, hold on, we want this stuff to be coming in from, you know, we want this to be domestically made to showcase um, the power of our industry. And the Soviet government, I, th- based on what I read, enacted a, uh, a race ban, a competition ban on the 2141KR. Uh, which might not have been upheld after the transition. There's some evidence that they've been raced. Um, and actually, as for motorsports in the Soviet Union, there's a hell of a lot to unpack there. They had a domestic open wheel series at one point. Um, I guess you could liken it a little bit to IndyCar. I haven't looked into it too much. They did have domestic motorsports uh, under the Soviet regime. They didn't have a lot of them, but it was a thing. Yeah, gotcha. Well, that's something yeah. I want to learn a lot more about. Yeah, I, I'll have to look into that. That's on my list. I've heard, I've, well, I've heard and I've seen something. People say there was a Russian Formula One. There was some sort of high level uh, domestic Soviet open wheel series. I don't know if you'd want to liken it to a Formula One or even modern IndyCar, but I'm going to look into that at some point. Also, at some point, I'm also going to do a big old uh i'm gonna do a big roster on all the group s cars that were like actually developed stuff like the 222d uh i think the audi 90 was that it i I don't remember the name of the audi prototype i let's see audi ford lancia had the ecv and ecv2 there were a bunch of companies that had these um i'm gonna Uh, do a big dossier on all those eventually Quattro RS2, I think is what their prototype was called for Group S. Is that what you said? That It might have been that. Yeah. that was uh, It was pretty wild aero, aerodynamics on that thing. Yeah. Um, it, it looked all like swoopy and weird for an Audi too. Yeah. And then I know, uh, you know, Ford had an updated RS200 uh, that mm-hmm. they were going to run for uh, Group S. Uh, Mazda got into the game with a RX-7S, uh, which I don't believe shared anything with the regular RX-7. Uh, there was an Opel Cadet, a Peugeot 405, Seattle Ibiza, Skoda 130, um, which I believe that would have been under uh, communist uh, Czechoslovakia. Might have to look into that. Um, of course, the Lada that we mentioned, uh, Lancia, ECV. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's all the ones that are on this list. Um, maybe there's more. 
but um yeah so like some of these were you know not very well developed but some of them they built actual running driving uh prototypes to test them out and everything mm-hmm. oh and as an aside uh we were talking about how competitive the soviet cars would have been the moskvich would have not done well it was only rear wheel drive and i think made about 190 horsepower wow. yeah based on <laughs> based on what i read and you won't be surprised motorsport quality turbochargers were very hard to come by at that time at that place yeah that yeah that tracks yeah they were needed for things like you know locomotives yeah well i think that's all we have on uh rally racing um do we have anything else to talk about (laughs) or should we wrap (laughs) up here We've been at it for a little bit. I think, I think we're good. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it was good to talk to you guys. Uh, we should do this more often. <laughs> I'm, but, I'm uh, good with that. Yeah. Uh, thanks, James, for coming on and talking about Soviet rally cars and everything. And you betcha. Yeah, yeah that was a, that was quite a quite a topic. Yeah, that was super interesting. It was a good one. I didn't know that stuff existed, and then. And then I started looking it up. Yeah, and I didn't know about it until you uh, published those articles. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't mind if you'd point me in the right direction to like try and learn more about Soviet motorsports in general. Oh, I mean, I would probably just start with a Google search and start seeing where that leads you. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I, I remember seeing something about it, but I don't remember the details. But uh, yeah, it's out there. I'm an old head about it, man. I'm like, what book did you find this in? (laughs) I I read a lot of Russian blogs to make those happen. Um, I I do have um, somewhere in this room. I have a Russian, like a short Russian magazine about the two one four one KR that came with a diecast that I bought from Russia. Oh, sweet! Yeah, it. It's one of the few diecasts I have, along with, oh god, the Volkswagen IDR and like the 2017 uh, Force India F1 car is the Muskvich 2141KR. But anyway, I've got this. I've got it's written in Cyrillic. I bet it's probably the best documentation on it out there because it's even got modern photos and everything. Um, I'm gonna get it translated at some point. Who knows if that'll make it into an article or if I'll just end up posting it to Twitter going, well, here's what we know, guys. Yeah, who who owns the copyright on that these days? Some old Soviet oh, the, <laughs> magazine. It, no, it was, it was a modern magazine. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it was printed maybe a few years ago. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when the Soviet Union fell, they didn't stop using Cyrillic, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I saw the signs that says McDonald's in English. You know. <laughs> why, why does it say McDonald's in English? They should just print it in English and it should just say McDonald's. <laughs> it says McDonald's in English, but that's written in Cyrillic. There's a lot of translation. Like, make the sign McDonald's in English. And they're like, yeah, we got it. Well, I understand. <laughs> oh, that, that reminds me. There was... um. I guess in Wales, uh, all the road signs have to be in English and Welsh. And uh, there was uh, <laughs> there was this one point where, like, huh? Those would be big road signs. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's this one road sign that someone figured out. The the Welsh uh, just said, uh, place Welsh translation here, <laughs> but in Welsh. So, <laughs> and then it didn't go noticed for like a few months after they put it up. It was just like placeholder text here, lorem ipsum, but in Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> Just go by a road sign that says something unintelligible and then bottom text. <laughs> and then you look it up later and it turns out there's a Welsh town called bottom text. <laughs> there probably is. That that tracks. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty sure like the whole like Welsh alphabet is actually just hieroglyphics of Welsh people like fucking sheep. Uh, based on what I know about Wales. Speaking of sexual hieroglyphics, let me see if I can find the... <laughs> no, just on Twitter the other day, some I saw some dude, like, he's like, well, I'm trying to figure out what the the character for Pharaoh is in hieroglyphics. And I didn't find that, but... Oh, God. Okay, here it is. I found it. I'm going to paste it into chat. That is the hieroglyphic symbol for who knows what. I just it, see well, a little square. Yeah. Oh, you don't have the Unicode thing for it? Um, you can you can do it on the Slack, maybe. Okay, yeah. Actually, I'm gonna drop it on Slack real quick and see if you guys can see that. Nope. No. Yeah, I, I don't have hieroglyphic loaded into my computer, so it's not translating. <laughs> um, it's a leaking cock. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> nice. Oh, wait, so could... that's that's like the hieroglyphic for like syphilis or something. <laughs> I possibly <laughs> wait let me see if i can paste the image into chat or something quick i must send everybody the hieroglyphic penis this is very important i need to sounds see like, this hieroglyphic penis sounds like the name uh, of a punk band or something i'm not sure that's gonna let me drop a screenshot in chat nope it's just it's just taking the file name oh wait no i'll just drop the screenshot and uh there we go. <laughs> that is the character. I am serious. That Wait, is, what is uh... that article for again? I have no idea. Oh, it, it's I, just... I, some, I, some guy on Twitter just found it. I think I've seen that on bathroom walls before. <laughs> yeah, I did not realize that so many people in my high school spoke Egyptian. <laughs> I would say, no, I just said it's a conspiracy. No, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> All right, good talking to you guys. I'm going to conspiracy, no? No? Get the memo that I run the puns around here. <laughs> yeah i don't know okay uh i think well, we're done on that note yeah uh, remember to follow us on social good. media and stuff <laughs> yeah maybe oh, yeah. we'll Come check. post pictures of uh egyptian dicks if, yeah. if <laughs> through some miracle you are still listening at this point follow us on stuff you must like yeah. us yeah i'm I make a lot of memes. Oh, if anyone and I also steal memes. Send me a supercharger. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, open to uh, parts sponsorships with no strings attached and also uh, memes. <laughs> also what? Memes. Memes. Oh, yeah. Send us memes and superchargers.
I do get sent quite a bit of memes on the social media accounts. It's it, they come through. Are, are, oh, how many of those are just me sending you memes? Some of them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I've got a couple that I need to put, post in the Slack for you. <laughs> we are not efficient at ending a podcast. Oh yeah, I should probably no, stop the recording, huh? Yeah. We gonna make you pay five and five bits. We make you pay five and water bits. We gonna fight racism, not racism, but we gonna fight the solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. <laughs> Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. The free market mythology it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers Applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.